So who thought John Roberts was ever going to do anything except run after uh, the conservative majority on that court? Like, I think possibly Professor Jesse Hill at Case Western had an inkling. <laughs> right. Um, but certainly not me. everyone and welcome to our soul uh i'm kelly a faith organizer at ohio rcrc and today we have terry you know the huge um also from ohio rcrc say hi terry hi everybody and also today we have a special <coughs> guest we have kelly copeland from NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. Hello, hello. Um, so today we're uh, coming together to have a conversation about this June medical versus Russo decision from the Supreme Court uh, on Monday this week. So, yeah. Yeah, who was, I mean, we were all, um, I think, awaiting annihilation. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it didn't happen, we were like, oh, yeah. Well, now what? I, I woke up, like, <laughs> slightly relieved and also slightly, like, now, like, like we were, I don't know, it's so weird to have, like, a, a victory and not another thing to fight against. <laughs> I know we were really preparing for, you know, the worst in case that happened. Um, so before we get into a big conversation, uh, first we should probably just go over uh, what is the case and uh, what does that... What does it matter for Ohio clinics? So you you mentioned you woke up really excited. I I'm like the random morning person, right? It's and so I was sitting over I know it's it's a disease, it really is, but you know, I'm normally up at like five, five thirty. So I was already halfway through my day at ten o'clock <laughs> when I am sitting pressing refresh obsessively like the absolute SCOTUS nerd that I am on the Supreme Court's website, trying to see what they were gonna release. They released an initial decision and the way that the release process goes, that you you can tell that there's another decision coming. Nobody knows what the decision is that's coming. And all of a sudden, up it pops onto the screen. And the only thing you can see on the initial screen is what the decision is and the initial of the justice that wrote the decision. And when June came up, I got so excited and I turned over and I completely forgot every person on the Supreme Court. I'm like, what is B? I don't understand. B, it says B. Who is B? And then it dawns on me, it's Justice Breyer. At which point, I had so many emotions because I thought, this isn't going to be as bad as we thought, maybe. So I clicked to it and opened it and immediately started reading through the text and... Um, was was pleasantly surprised. We essentially got to keep a, a battered up status quo. Um, yeah, but the the upshot of June uh, Medical Services v. Russo was that you have this this very restrictive law. They we call them trap laws, uh, targeted restriction of abortion provider laws, that are specifically used by conservative state legislatures to try to put 
clinics out of business and to try to limit access to um, really all forms of reproductive health care, but particularly abortion uh, in states. We've got these laws all over. We have them in Ohio. You've, you've had them in uh, the courts. There was already uh, multiple decisions before the Supreme Court. So here we go again with these, these trap laws. Uh, Louisiana basically said you have to have, uh, you know, some kind of an agreement with a facility nearby. There has to be a 30-mile limit, um, you know, for you to be able to perform an abortion. Uh, you have to have a 30-mile uh, radius and have within that radius at least one space uh, that is designated an emergency uh, room or emergency department, which of course is ridiculous. No other uh, piece of healthcare within our, our national system has that kind of requirement. But here it is, it comes before the Supreme Court again. Almost an identical decision was decided out of Texas that rose to the Supreme Court, uh, commonly referred to as Whole Woman's Health. Right, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt was already decided, I think, 2016. So here comes the same kind of law, the same kind of challenge, and we essentially had to rehear uh, this case. Um, so for us, the outcome was basically maintaining the status quo. The Supreme Court said, "No, actually, we're gonna we're gonna keep." Uh, the standards in place that we have. We're not going to allow these laws to go forward because they do present an undue burden, um, which basically means that clinics in Ohio don't have to worry about that particular route uh, that the legislature could take to try to shut them down. Um, it's also kind of a problem because the status quo really isn't that great right now <laughs> because this is not a broad sweeping decision in, in favor of abortion access. It's just a, a simple decision that that particular kind of assault can't go forward in that fashion. So um, I, I think we, we kind of tempered our, our expectations uh, ahead of time to know that the status quo was as good as we were going to get. Yeah, we basically got it. Well, right? but we what we did get was, um, and I think a lot of what's important about this case is why did the Supreme Court hear a case on a nearly identical law? What happened? Hmm. Hmm. What happened between Whole Women's <coughs> Health and June Medical? Hmm. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, President Trump was elected. He was able to put two justices on the court, mm -hmm. um, one of which was this guy, Kavanaugh, Kavanope, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I feel like there was a pretty big I told you so moment um, over at Senator Susan Collins's house, like, you know, we all tried mm. to tell her, like, Hey, uh, this Kavanaugh guy, um, he sucks, and um, he's lying to you. And she was like, no, no, no. He told me that he respects stare decisis, which just means he respects what the court said <coughs> before. And, um, yeah, so not only did he lie to her and get his, uh, uh, his butt on the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment, but now I think he's uh, repaid her by uh, handing the voters of Maine an excellent uh, case for um, how they might want to consider their votes in the fall. <laughs> and uh, so um, I think we learned a lot 
um, about the Supreme Court with this case and what precedent is going to mean, and a lot about Justice Roberts, who I was listening to Boom Lawyered, because unlike Terry, I did not immediately sit down and read the decision. I was like, I will get to that later. But I did listen to the attorneys on Boom Lawyered, and they basically described it as Chief Justice Roberts going, I said what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But from what I've heard, he also left a lot of breadcrumbs for um, additional attacks on access to abortion. And I don't think that surprises any of us who have been around long enough that we fought Robert's appointment um, to the court. And uh, I don't think that this is a harbinger of, you know, some sort of, like, hey, we're all safe now. Yeah. This is, this right. is like, right. okay, we live to fight another day, but, you know, we do not have a majority on the court. And, you know, even, even when, uh, you know, Justice Kennedy was the one who was, you know, kind of the swing vote on the court, one guy on the Supreme Court was never a good plan. Yeah. And I think that, you know, whole women's health and June medical, all of these cases really enforced that that's just, not, that was not a good plan, ever. Well, and and can I just lift up one piece of irony when you read over the decision in in June Medical? You have a decision for the plurality that is written by Justice Breyer. The plurality, of course, uh, you know, Sotomayor, Kagan, Breyer, and Ginsburg, those four were joined in part by the Chief Justice, by John Roberts, but not in whole. So Justice Breyer wrote for the court, in the plurality, and then you have a concurrence by Justice Roberts, and then you have four dissents by each of the other four male justices. So you have a total of six opinions on this case, all written by men. Not a single opinion written by a woman um, in this case, all of the men chiming in to talk about, uh, you know, the, the process about standard. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Really fascinating. You got, you got three women on the court and it's the six men. I know like my, my first reaction on Monday morning, um, knowing that if it was announced, it was going to be a very busy day for me. Um, I, you know, looked on my phone and I was still laying in bed and I was like, (laughs) please. (laughs) Um, And so when it finally went up, like I was mostly scared because of the two, the two justices that have been appointed. And like, Mm -hmm. we there's like a conservative majority. And, you know, uh, like Kelly said, like, uh, Kavanaugh has essentially said, like, he will take down Roe v. Wade. And so to hear like this being the first abortion case that they're hearing, I was real nervous about that. Um, So it was really relieved (laughs) is just the best word to describe um that i wasn't going to have to be defending things um as much on monday um but like it's it's you know it's not it's not great it's the status quo and the status quo isn't great um and especially like thinking about ohio and the way that ohio politicians are constantly attacking abortion like this isn't the greatest of news i would love to have like a thing that says like stop because they've already said no but like it uh justice roberts uh 
refusal to join the rest of the majority um, uh, does not have that, like, strong uh, support thing. Right. As I would wish it to. As strong of a defense as I would hope. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, Kelly, to, to talk about, you know, John Roberts' refusal to join that plurality to make an actual majority of the court means that his decision is going to carry more weight than any decision um, that was put out, any of the dissents, any of the the, uh, majority opinion. His concurrence is now, according to the Marx standard, uh, for those, you know, nerds that are are running around constitutional law, um, his decision represents the narrowest construence of the law. It's the narrowest uh, interpretation that can uh, be the decisive factor when there isn't a majority opinion. So now Robert's opinion becomes much more uh, important than the rest of uh, what has been written in many ways. And there's an important distinction that is going to be a real snoozer for most folk, but like really, really important um, for us going forward. In the decision that was issued in... Uh, whole woman's health versus Hellerstedt. The justices set up, and you know, in in that decision, it was a five-three decision with Anthony Kennedy joining the the four liberal justices uh, to make that decision. They set up a standard where they said any law cannot be implemented to restrict abortion if it impacts abortion access in a way that that produces what's called an undue burden. So the undue burden is the essential element that makes a restriction on abortion unconstitutional. But they set up in that system a, a test. You had to weigh the burden against the benefits of the law. That is, a state has a recognized state interest in regulating health uh, procedures, regulated state interest in regulating a lot of the work that is done. Um, you know, in in healthcare facilities. So you have to weigh what state benefits they claim, the state claims that law is advancing against what burdens against a a person's right to healthcare that presents. What John Roberts did in the June decision is to essentially say in his concurrence, you don't have to worry about benefits at all. We're not concerned about benefits. The controlling issue is whether or not the undue burden is severe enough in that particular law. Now, what we've heard from a lot of folk, uh, you know, particularly we got to hear uh, from the great folks over at Open, the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network. Uh, they did a, a little uh, sponsored webinar here this week where we got to hear from uh, Jesse Hill at Case Western. Uh, just, you know, some some observations that we could see a situation in the future where that statement from Roberts, that uh, idea that only the burden is to be considered, not the benefit, would mean that the state doesn't have to prove that laws restricting abortion have any benefit. That the state could essentially come and argue before, you know, the courts that it doesn't have an undue burden. Regardless of what the benefit is, regardless of, uh, you know, whether it has a positive impact on people's health, you know, they could come and argue that the burden is not undue. That means that we're constantly having to defend whether this burden is an undue burden or not. And I don't know about you, but I think any burden on somebody's health care is 
BS. Well, and let's... I'll say that instead of what I really want well, to say. Let's but let's be honest. <laughs> you know, these, whether, you know, like in Texas and Louisiana, it was hospital admitting privileges, or here in Ohio, it's transfer agreements. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all, um, it's all, it's all BS. You know, it, it, it says that it's about patient safety, um, but it's not. Um, abortion is among, if not the safest medical procedure a person can have. And actually, you know, that works against clinics who are trying to get admitting privileges or transfer agreements sometimes because, you know, those aren't based on performance, you know, how good a doctor is. They're based on how many people you admit to the hospital. And, you know, I don't know, when you're really good at giving people abortion care, you're not admitting people to the hospital. So, I mean, in some ways, you know, I think that, um, you know, all of the state arguments that this was somehow, you know, a benefit for patient safety. I mean, everybody knew, and I think in her opinion in the um, whole women's health case, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, kind of called them out and was like, ah, nah. Nah, I mean this. This is all nonsense. You, you know, this this isn't about patient safety. You know, this is a a solution in search of a problem. This is, you know, this is really about closing clinics. And, you know, those regulations that you saw coming out of Virginia and Texas and Ohio, all starting in 2011, they were part of a national strategy, and they were all a little bit different because of two things. One, they wanted to kind of put this buffet in front of the Supreme Court to say, well, would you like this platter to, to dis- decimate Roe? Or maybe this one? Um, and so they made them just a little bit different so that they could have all of these different things being challenged in the courts so they could see what hits. So I think in terms of Ohio, um, you know, although the whole women's health and the um, June medical case are about hospital admitting privileges and not transfer agreements, Um, they do have some bearing on what legislators in Ohio will do and how they, you know, how they pass things as part of this ongoing legal strategy to send case after case after case through the federal courts, which now have a hundred Trump appointees on the appellate courts, which is, those are lifetime appointments, gang, that's terrifying. Um, you know, so this is, this is, you know, one salvo after another after another. We, you know, this round didn't turn out as bad as right. it could have, but so many more are coming. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I, when I heard the decision in the morning, like at first I was kind of relieved. And then that night, you know, I was watching, you know, on social media throughout the day, people celebrating and being happy and I just wasn't and I was just kind of sitting there by myself and I hadn't said anything publicly really all day Uh, Kelly Fox and others you know had been designated as the people to speak and that was amazing and the response was 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 on point and and spot on and yeah I was kind of sitting there just I don't know I couldn't be happy and so you know, I I wrote about that on on my Facebook page, and I said that, you know, I know I should be happy, um, you know, with this ruling at the Supreme Court, but, you know, honestly, I was just sick and tired of this country being held hostage to the whims of one man, whether it be on the Supreme Court 
or one senator or mm. one cop who decides he's judge and jury and executioner on any given day. And I, I was just like, I, I don't want these crumbs that are meted out. I want liberation for all of us. And so that's, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be happy because this, this was just a reprieve. The work of liberation, the work of making sure that there's true reproductive freedom, that there's true reproductive justice, that there's true racial justice, equity and equality for everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of zip code, regardless of faith. That is so not what happened. This was like right. the powers that be going, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to give you this small thing. But really, did Roberts do that because he cared about anyone that was going to be impacted? No, he did it because he cares about his legacy and his reputation on the court. And I think, I, I don't know, it's just kind of all tied up in how People don't want to wear masks because they don't care about other people. They, you know, they don't, they don't, there's so many things that people won't do because they're inter- more interested in punishing other people or getting whatever they think is their due. And they don't understand that if there's not mutual liberation, they're never going to have the safety and security that they need. And right. mm-hmm. I was like, I sat there before I, I posted my post. I was like, gosh, I am such a Debbie Downer. <laughs> like, we should be able to celebrate victories. And we yeah, need those. It's... And I don't want to harsh anybody's buzz out there. But I was just like, uh, it's sad. You know? yeah, but it's true. And, like, um, you know, it. we don't want people to be, like, naive and believe that, like, you know, we're all safe now and, like, let our guard yes. down. Like, that's, now is not the time to do that. Um, yes. when you were, when you were talking about, um, like people not wearing their masks and this idea of like, uh, that people can be liberated individually rather than like as a community, um, in a class that I took last semester, I don't know if I've mentioned it on this podcast, but, um, I, uh, heard this new definition of sinfulness that has kind of like stuck with me, um, ever since. And so we were, we were having a conversation with a UU, um, Unitarian Universalist and she was talking about how she sees sin and what she said was um, the idea that you can do whatever you want and do things that are harmful to the community without the consequences coming back to you that is sinfulness the idea that you can like you know go out the example she used is like go out and pollute the water which i think is a really apt example especially a couple weeks ago with people polluting protesters water um if you you can go out and pollute the water and that is not going to like come back to you um that is sinfulness and so the idea that like people can be protected and people um who you know are in the the conservative majority right now can think that they're protected and like they're never going to have to face any of the things that everyone else is facing but like the idea that that won't come back to you that is sinfulness in yourself the idea that you can be disconnected from the community that you live in um and that you won't be affected by the things that affect your community um and i yeah and and i think too um 
you know, to join uh, what's been said previously, yeah, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but let's get real here. Um, I get really angry when we start e even thinking about the way that we talk uh, of the problem in our nation right now. We say a conservative majority, but when we say a conservative majority, we mean people who are trying to strip healthcare from people, mm. folk who are trying to defend people's right to make their neighbors sicker by not wearing masks and not social distancing. There's nothing conservative mm -hmm. about that position. That is hostile radicalism mm -hmm. in the worst possible way. And I think, you know, as religious people, um, for me, all of this, every single piece of, of this puzzle and this conversation about June uh, medical services goes back to religious and ethical values, right? First off, you're trying to implement these laws in a false pretense, right? My religious tradition, big core principle, one of the big ten, is don't bear false witness. Stop your lying, as my grandmother would say, right? Like, stop your lying. Just don't lie about it, right? You, you go on to think about the care that we have for our neighbors, the care that we have for others, the respect that we have for one another to self-determine our life and what life, liberty, and the pursuit of our happiness looks like, none of that, none of that is a conservative or conserving ethic. Mm. That is an ethic of domination and control and patriarchy mm -hmm. that has to get out of our world. It has to leave. True liberation looks like letting go of that kind of obsessive control, of breaking those chains, and making sure that every person has the right to self-determination, not as some, you know, man in a robe somewhere in the Supreme Court or the Senate or any other place would have it, but as that individual is able to live and breathe and have their being. But Terry, yeah, that's, if they do that, that's what we're looking for. How will how will companies and other places be able to exploit people and make a profit? I mean, mm, I'll tell you, capitalism. Capitalism ought to be worried right now, right? Folk yeah. ought to be shaking, <laughs> shaking in their coin machines, right? Because oh, now people are going to call me. you a communist, Terry. Because there's, <laughs> there's only capitalism and communism. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a be. binary decision, Terry. Let me tell you, I'm here for the capital. <laughs> I'm here for the capitalism of joy. And if we're not having some capitalism of joy, if we're not able to to buy and sell and trade in joy and wonder and express right I mean that's what we're looking at people need to have lives where they aren't bound to how much money's in their pocket but how much hope is in their heart right Oof. and we we have gotten so far away from that in this country where we call conservative that ideology that says I am free to ignore you I am free to ignore your plight I am free to ignore everything about you for profit Mm -hmm. I, I just, I can't go there. I can't go to yeah. that church. You know what I mean? I can't go, I can't go to that place, right? Can't yeah. do that. Mm -mm. Just, uh, the, the part of like what I said on the, um, some of the media stuff that I did that got cut out, um, I was asked, <laughs> the best part um, gets cut out. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so I was asked Same. like, what does this mean for, um, like Ohio and like what does this mean for people fighting for abortion rights in Ohio and I said it means that like we need to start attacking the racist capitalist uh patriarchal systems that are here in Ohio that are allowing these things to like keep going through and um 
just because like this thing keeps the status quo and it um you know it keeps things the way they are that doesn't mean like that we quit fighting um like we're going to continue to have to fight and he talked about like um those cases that are currently going through in ohio um like what what this means for those cases and it just means that we continue to fight against those systems that um have perpetuated all these feelings because it's not uh like terry what you were talking about um it's really hard for me to to think of this as like just republican or just um like conservative because it's just for me it's just sinful it's just that sinfulness right. that i was talking about like that belief that you are um uh like not you have nothing to do with the consequences of any of your actions um and i don't know it's hard for me to i i can't allow that to be connected to my religion and i can't allow that to be um connected to me in any way because it's just it's just harmful and selfish and bad <laughs> right. sinful right I, you know, I'm reminded of, I, I just read, this is kind of a plug, but um, I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, I just read the book Unapologetic, A Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements by Charlene Carruthers, who is amazing, amazing, amazing activist out of Chicago. And she gives five questions. She gives those those five key questions uh, in that text for what radical, progressive, uh, name it whatever you want, but movements for collective liberation look like. Um, you know, the the questions are pretty essential. Who am I? Who are my people? What do we want? What are we building? And her last question is, are we ready to win? And I think that's that's always got to be our question around, like, are we ready to not just just be thankful for the crumbs, right? Like like Kelly Copeland, like you were saying, are we ready to really win a true liberative ethic? Are we ready to have not just, uh, you know, abortion access provided and protected? Are we ready to have funded abortion, you know, to get rid yes. of the Hyde Amendment? Are we ready to have communities of liberative control that allow... Um, you know, local community ethics to be lived out. Are we ready to win that kind of future? Um, mm -hmm. And not just wait for some man on the Supreme Court to be like, all right, I guess today we'll leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, are we ready to, um, not only to win in those ways, but ready to imagine something that's better than like the current moment, yes. not just uh, imagine, you know, winning against the attacks against us, but like winning in the ability to create something that is uh, life-giving and, uh, yeah, life-giving and liberating and providing joy to those who have been under so much pain. Um, yeah. Another way is possible. Yes. We have been sold a bill of goods that you can only have so much, that there's not enough. Um, you know, I'm often reminded when people say, you know, uh, from my faith tradition, you know, why does God let these things happen? Um, you know, why does God let people starve? Or why does God let these things happen? And I was like, God doesn't. There, whatever, whatever faith tradition you're in, it is clear that there's enough. There's enough for all of us. The Amen. question is, what do we do about that? This country always seems to have money to go to war. But when are we going to have money... 
I mean, we only spend 10 cents um, uh, from the state coffers uh, for each child in foster care. We've got more than a dime for kids, right? There is enough. It's about the choices that we're making. And I think we just have to stop believing this narrative that we've been sold that the way it is is the way it always has to be and that it's good enough. It's not. There's enough. Amen. I mean, I think that, you know, the silence on behalf of um, many people in the Christian faith in particular has been such a, such a harmful thing to so many people. People who never attended a church have this terrible narrative in their head that they're, they're going to hell, that they're doing all these things. Yeah. And, and just simple, it might seem like a simple thing, but you guys being on the radio and talking about this stuff and being public and Kelly, you being on TV about this, that is, that's the kind of stuff that changes the world. That there's going to be a new tape in people's head eventually. That's good. That's if, if like, um, so when I originally started seminary, I was wanting to be a pastor and quickly changed my mind about that because of, um, the Methodist church and their recent decisions. Um, I was literally, I was a, a pastor out of church of 15 at, in, in, uh, rural. Oh gosh. What is even the name of it? I don't know. It's between Marion and Marysville. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so, uh, I was a pastor there and I quit as soon as the, um, as soon as general conference 2019 was over, because when I got to church the next Sunday, my whole church basically came out to me as homophobic. Um, and so I literally, I had put in my letter of uh, resignation to the district. But, um, after that I was like, Hey, I would like to get out sooner rather than later. Um, but anyway, after, after that, I was like, why am I even in seminary anymore? Because like, I'm not becoming a pastor. And, um, the, the thing that like, has been like the reason for me to keep going is like I cannot stand for people to like sully the name of like Christianity um as someone who uh at least like 20 years of my life has solidly been in the Methodist church specifically um and in Christianity I like cannot have anyone tarnishing this belief system that I've believed for so long um and so it is my goal um, in, even if like, um, like I want to be an executive director one day, but even if like my, the organization that I run, um, has nothing to do with faith, at least I can say like, I will not let people believe that people of faith are always against everything. Um, that is like my, my life goal. <laughs> and you don't, uh, as someone who, um, and, uh, I don't want to get into it now, but, uh, Someone, I, I, when I was church shopping, I looked at the Methodist church, and for the reasons that you mentioned, I was like, mm, no. Um, so I landed at the UCC, because um, I thought that that was going to be everything, and then they sued me, and, <laughs> and so now we're non-denominational, and, you know, that's, that was painful, but I think the thing that it taught me is, um, you know, really specifically is, a church is not a building, it's not a denomination, um, it's a community, 
and you don't have to you don't have to be part of any of those institutional structures to be a pastor to be a reverend to be um, any of those things that you want to be in fact in many ways I think I mean I don't know Jesus he did a pretty good job and he didn't have any institutions so I don't know <laughs> well and and I think part of that structure is that Jesus was too radical of a progress maker for us to somehow turn him into a white guy in a coat and tie who follows all the rules, you know? And if the system does not serve the people for whom it is supposedly made, then the system has to go. You know, I mean, Jesus, Jesus says real clear with people, you know, the Sabbath was made for people, not yes. people for the Sabbath. Right. Uh, and we, we got to get back into that. Cause let me tell you, I look at American Christianity and I, I wonder if Christianity ever actually came to America, to the United States, because what I see in the United States that passes for Christianity right now, that's not really Christianity. That's a that's a system of Eurocentric patriarchy that's really been a good franchise model, but much like Blockbuster, um, has a limited shelf life in the next, you know, yes. three, four decades. Christianity, which is the radical, transformational, deep, relational connectivity that Jesus teaches, I don't see that in many places with steeples. I just don't. I, I do not see it. I see it outside those places. I see it more on the steps of those places with the homeless folk and, and the people who are, are engaging that population than I do the people who get up next to the altar. So yeah, I'm I'm looking for the day when Christianity actually does come to this nation, you know, like full on. But mm, mm, mm. yes, until that until that day, we're gonna keep working <laughs> it, keep moving it, keep making it happen. I I tell people I tell people we're we're jiving for repro. <laughs> You reminded me of one of my favorite moments. I'll say this, and I know you have to go, but um, we uh, on uh, I think it was a Good Friday uh, on that weekend um, did uh, performance live performances at our church of the play Corpus Christi, Um, and uh, the JCs and a bunch of Catholics they got pretty upset. And uh, they came out with all their feathers and their robes and 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 their doll and her glass <laughs> case. You know who I'm talking about. And um, yeah. you know yeah. we you know we had you know lots of security set up, not police, but ourselves. You know we knew how to do that. Um, and we had a lot of people outside um, dancing to uh, "Born This Way" and other songs on the steps of our church and. Honestly, I think that's one of my favorite faith memories because they're out there screaming at us how terrible we are and we're just we're just loving each other and being joyful and there was just something about that that was one of my favorite faith memories and 
you know, it, it, I think there were a lot of people that think, oh, I can't believe you, know, you guys were protesting. I was like, you know, we, you can be joyful in the face yeah, of, for sure. of hate. You can. Yeah. Amen. Well, um, that's about all the time we have today. So it was really great talking to you guys about um, June and the result of that case and how it affects us. Thanks so much for joining us. And again, this has been Kelly Fox and Terry Williams for the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Check us out at ohiorcrc.org slash podcast for an extended version of today's podcast and lots more.